Hannah. I'm Sheena. And I'm Lori. And this is Cemetery Row. Welcome to our very first episode. Woohoo! Yay! Yes! <laughs> um, so if you're here and listening to us, I guess that means you probably know one of us. <laughs> I mean, for now, maybe for now. in a year or two, um, thousands of people will be flocking back to this episode to see how we all got started. Roughly um, is the answer to that. <laughs> yes, it is. Yes, it is. Um, Absolutely. <laughs> so <laughs> Cemetery Row, if you um, have guessed by the title, um, we are going to focus on stories from history with sort of a cemetery twist. Um focusing especially on true crime, the paranormal, um, maybe some conspiracy theories, but nothing to, you know, we don't, we don't believe in lizard people around here, but, or do we? I don't. As long as they're not an anti-Semitic conspiracy, we'll allow the lizards. Great. Okay. Sounds good. Um, So, um, so yeah, so this is a, we're just going to go through some stories that fascinate us and we hope that they will fascinate you. Um, And if you're wondering who we are and how we all got together to do this, um, it started, gosh, what y'all, 14 years ago, 15? How long have we known each other? Baby girl, 16 years, because we met in 2005. Okay, I'm ancient. Oh my goodness, (laughs) yes, she's right. She's right. So, um, yeah, we all met in college. We all went to Ole Miss, aka the University of Mississippi. No, we are not sorority girls. Or um, we were all on the staff of the Daily Mississippian, which was at the time the um, student-run daily newspaper. It's still student-run, but I don't think it's daily. I think they only publish two or three times a week now. Um, but either way, this was years ago apparently 16 um (laughs) um, I hired these two women to join me on my team back then I was editor-in-chief Hannah was managing editor Lori was arts and life editor um and we had some adventures right girls yes Yes, we did (laughs) oh my lord (laughs) um so yeah so we have been friends for what feels like forever um, and we have covered news stories together. We've also gotten drunk in New Orleans together. I mean, we, you name it, we've done it, basically. Um, so, yeah, so welcome to the show. Um, do y'all have anything else y'all want to add to that? Um, we're all very much into true crime, as you'll see as the story goes on. And we all kind of came to it in different ways and for different reasons. Um, we're all into the paranormal. We're all into um, all of those kinds of really fun things. And we like to share them with each other. So we wanted to find these really awesome stories and share them with you guys. Absolutely. You know, weird shit is just our thing and you know I'm looking forward to hearing some some crazy stories I'm looking forward to sharing some crazy stories and you know hopefully there's others like us out there I hope so unless if we're the only weirdos then I'm glad I have (laughs) y'all exactly surely not surely not (laughs) surely not (laughs) okay so 
for this initial episode, I think what we want to do is talk about, um, as Hannah said, we all came to true crime and, and paranormal and just the weirdness of life in different ways. So we wanted to talk about how we got started and um, maybe about some of the stories we like to share in the future, maybe like a, a cute little um, promo. But um, we will, from here on out, the episodes we hope will be themed. Um, but yeah, so th this first one's just a little bit of a test. So y'all just bear with us. Um, so who wants to go first in telling their um, true crime obsession beginnings? I'll go. I'll go. Oh. <laughs> Lori, hey, you, you have to go first. Are you sure? Oh. Okay. Yes. You're so polite. So we yes, are. Yes, edit this. Out. We are Southerners. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. So, hey, Hannah, you can go ahead and, and go. The okay. floor is yours. Thank you. Okay. So, my first murder was in 1987. Wait, what? Oh, Did you yes. murder someone? Mm, no, I was three. I murdered Please nobody. You said at age my three. first murder. <laughs> that so, sounded like preschool game my first murder <laughs> I didn't go to preschool I was a heathen um my mother was a police officer in Kansas City Missouri which is where I was born and Nyla Waycasser murdered her two sons in the bathroom of a motel in Kansas City after losing custody of them to their father her defense blamed the drug Halcyon for the murder and after her convictions she overdosed on an antidepressant Elevil, which I have taken in my vast history of mental health adventures. Um, I remember this murder because I remember my parents, my mom especially, being a police officer, um, talking about it. And this was, of course, in the 80s when you did not edit for children. If you happened to be in the room, you heard what you heard. So... Being from a Latino family, though, death was never really mysterious. We always went to the cemetery on birthdays and on their death anniversaries. We always had prayer cards from funerals that were all over the place. And the first wake I ever went to was at the age of six. And that was my great uncle, Johnny, my great grandmother's um, uncle or brother, rather. Um, the only wake I wasn't allowed to go to was that of a stillborn baby when I was eight. And that was a cousin. Um, and that's just because... Yeah, my mom is a little superstitious about having a child uh, at a baby's funeral. So uh, popular culture wise, the 80s and the 90s were pretty much the wild, wild west. Uh, we uh, there was no children's programming except for on Saturday morning. You watched what your parents watched. Um, and if you were like me, you sat on the floor and you were the remote because we didn't have remotes for TVs back then. Um because I'm old. Um, so again, I watched whatever my parents watched, which was things like the Stone Phillips Jeffrey Dahmer interview, which I think I was like maybe six or seven. Definitely shouldn't have watched it. Definitely did. Um, and then there was just miniseries. I don't know if you guys remember that about the 90s, but miniseries were it. Like we didn't have ID. Lifetime wasn't really a thing yet. So the major networks would have like these three night mini series. And it was always your boyfriend was a rapist. Your best friends were trying to kill you. Um, and that's also why Farrah Fawcett will always be Diane Downs to me. And why my mom really hates the song Hungry Like a Wolf by Duran Duran. Because as you'll no doubt know, she was playing that while she was shooting her children. 
Duran Duran did wow. nothing to deserve that. So my not. mom, they did not. They're amazing. And quite frankly, it's Sully's their good name. Um, true crime, though, really was an interest throughout my life because, again, my mom read a lot of true crime. So I started reading a lot of true crime once I grew out of Goosebumps. Um, so one of the very first ones that I remember reading was Aphrodite Jones's book about the Shanda Shearer murder, where a group of teenage girls set their little friend on fire while she was still alive. It was incredibly creepy. Shit! Was, yeah. Yeah. We'll, we'll touch on that at some point, but it was just a nightmare and um, really made me look at my little group of girlfriends in school and be like, hmm, which one of you? One of you would. I know one of you would. Um, I'm sure. <laughs> exactly. And then I moved on to like Richard Ramirez and John Wayne Gacy, who we, I recently discovered I was the same age when he got arrested for murder and I have not killed a single teenage boy. And I really feel like a slacker, but I, I've got three months, I guess. I time. will. <laughs> Go ahead. I will tell you that you do not look <laughs> like you're the same age as John Wayne Gacy. John Wayne Gacy. He could. He couldn't be like 60 years old. He's just, he was disgusted. I mean, obviously he was disgusting. Yeah, he did look to, in to, his 50s. <laughs> to think that you are the same age as he was when he was arrested is just bonkers, blows my mind. Yeah. It's, and then me and Sheena actually Googled before the show. He was born on March 17th and I was born on March 18th. So <laughs> <laughs> me and John Wayne Gacy have a lot in common. Also, I'm in Chicago currently. Um, so though we all met in Mississippi, I came up to Chicago last year. So there's actually a big connection between Mississippi and Chicago. And so some of my stories are actually going to touch on that. Um, so as we kind of moved forward, you know, you had forensic files, you had investigation discovery and all kinds of other true crime podcasts, which I love. I really, especially being a history minor and a journalism major, like all three of us were journalism majors is okay so we have this crime what does that mean in the cultural sense what does that mean in a historical sense um you know does this is this an indicator of something bigger or something cultural that's happening at that time so i always take an interest in what crimes capture the nation's attention and what goes unnoticed um, if you remember when the Bundy files, um, at least the Zac Efron, um, Bundy Netflix extravaganza came out, everyone, there was a lot of pearl clutching about, oh, you can't make Bundy jokes, how horribly offensive, but Dahmer jokes are completely nobody, you know, nobody cared. And it's so, you know, the difference is they're victims. One killed pretty white ladies and the other killed gay young men of color and a lot of times children of color one of his victims was 14 um and was given back to him by the milwaukee police again we'll touch on these things um too many uh women of color victims of crime without any notice or care from the larger narrative uh the grim sleeper is for one example um anthony soul uh, who killed women in, I believe it was Cleveland, is another. Um, the really good documentary about Anthony Soul, a convenience store owner in his neighborhood, was basically like, I wish they were like a hundred Anthony Souls to like clean up the streets. I mean, it's just, you know, these are a lot of people, you know, 
nobody cares about women of color, drug addicts, people with mental health problems, um, unhoused people, uh, which is apparently the new word for homeless. So I, I, again, and that's something else you're going to find from us is we're going to be very careful with our language. Um, we're all, you know, we like inclusive language. And so if we screw up on that, just let us know. And we will make sure that we use the correct language. We, we call things sex worker. We're very, yeah, we try to be good on that. And then, like I said, members of the LGBTQ community are still under constant threat. Gay bashing is absolutely still alive and well in these United States. So I want to look into what we talk about when we talk about death, what we talk about when we talk about murder, what makes one death more tragic than another. Um, You know, there's that saying the death of one of the tragedy, the death of millions is just a sight to see. So I, my, I come from that cultural let's look into that let's let's take that apart and decide why we as a society have decided some deaths are more tragic and some lives are worth more and not only that of how do these things fit into our larger cultural narrative and that's my spiel (laughs) first of all your mom is a boss ass bitch (laughs) i did not know that she had been a police officer so yay hannah's mom (laughs) So when I think back of when I first got interested in cemeteries, true crime, and, you know, all things spooky, I think of the times I spent visiting my grandparents in the Ozarks of Missouri. Um, when I was a youngster, my, um, my dad would take me out on the farm on a four-wheeler and tease me about Rosie the ghost, um, the ghost of a little girl that had lived on the farm. And of course, I didn't believe him. I thought he was just being silly, but I did learn what the inspiration for Rosie the Ghost was. Um, it was a graveyard, the Kennedy Family Cemetery, that happened to be on my grandparents' property. I found out where specifically it was located because I think part of me still didn't really believe it. Um, so one morning I got up. I got my grandma's Polaroid camera and I trekked out across the fields to find Freddie Field, which was uh, what they called the field that this cemetery was located at. Um, I dodged angry mama cows, snakes, all kinds of things that a 10 year old probably shouldn't have been nearby. And I found this graveyard outside the Freddie Field. It was back in the woods. It didn't look like anybody had been in there in years. Um, And many of the graves were, you couldn't read the headstones and the ones you could read, didn't have a lot of information. Most of the people seemed to have lived long lives. Um, Most of them had lived in the late 1800s and died in the early 1900s. But there was one grave in particular that stood out to me. It was a little more prominent and it was the grave of a little girl named Bonnie Sue. And she had only lived for two days when she died. And I was just so fascinated by what could have happened to her. Um, I I went, years later, I would go online and search for information about her and her family. And there was nothing. Her parents were not buried in the cemetery. Just this one little girl who had only lived for two days in 1925. Um, And my grandmother who knew a little bit about the cemetery couldn't tell me any other information either. So that kind of spurred my interest into uh, cemeteries. And of course my mom was 
way into true crime. And so my um, obsession with cemeteries and murder kind of uh, came, came by to me naturally. Um, I just was obsessed. I, as Hannah said, I watched all the true crime uh, documentaries. I watched, um, I watched uh, movies, made-for-TV movies about uh, cheerleader murders and and best friend murders. So I, I was definitely hooked. I wrote a short story for my sophomore English class that was a crime novella. I um, somehow convinced my junior English teacher to allow me to write my research paper on Jack the Ripper when it was supposed to be an, an aspect of the 1920s. I did uh, my junior research paper on Al Capone. You know, I became obsessed with murder, macabre, just all things spooky. So when I was applying to go to college, I knew I wanted to be a crime reporter. And the University of Mississippi has a great journalism school. So I was like, yeah, I'm going there. I'm going to be a crime reporter. I'm going to be awesome. And it was while I was there working as the arts and life editor under Dear Sheena and with Hannah that I experienced my first real true crime, uh, which kind of honestly shifted my opinion on what I wanted to do with my life. Um, It was November and I was walking back to my dorm um, after having worked at the newspaper that night. Um, it was probably 11 o'clock by, by then. And I walk into the door of my dormitory and my resident advisor, Jessica, is sitting at the front desk in tears. I was curious. So I asked, you know, what's, what's going on? And one of the other girls mentioned that she had not been able to hear from her best friend in several days. And she just knew something had happened and that the girl's boyfriend had done it. And that, of course, piqued my interest immediately. Um, so I talked to some other girls on our floor, got some information. And all I knew was that something had happened to this girl, Demetria Bracy, at her boyfriend's apartment. So I got in the car with my roommate and a couple other girls that lived on the floor. And we drove over to this apartment complex where the boyfriend lived. And I took out my little pink razor flip phone and called Sheena. And I thought you were trying to, I thought you were joking. Um, When you told me you saw what all you saw, I thought you were joking. And I mean, we were so close to deadline. I'm like, we can't get this in the paper for tomorrow. Like, yeah, yeah. Yeah. So I drove around this complex forever and didn't see anything. And so... I was getting ready to turn around. Honestly, I'm like, this is, this is just ridiculous. I'm being stupid. I come around a corner and all of a sudden I see like eight police cars, the Mississippi crime lab uh, van, and just a bunch of sheriff deputies with shotguns. Um, It took me a few minutes to get up the courage, uh, you know, and the girls in the car were egging me on to, to, you know, get out and go see what's going on. So I got out of the car in my pajamas and ran over to the first guy I could saw. And I, you know, put on my little girl voice and was like, hi, I'm with the uh, Daily Mississippian. Um, I heard there might've been a murder here tonight. Can you tell me anything about that? And he just looked at me with his shotgun. Yes, and with his shotgun and said, uh, yeah, I can't comment on anything. 
But of course I knew shit had gone down. I don't know what, but something had gone down. And uh, so he couldn't tell me anything. I called Sheena, told her there was nothing to tell. And then in the coming days, we learned what had actually happened in that apartment. And it was just awful, 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 awful. Um, Demetria Bracey, I will say her name as often as I can, um, by all accounts was just fun-loving, full of life, loved everything about uh, the French language and culture, and was a member of the, the Ole Miss Marching Band, and just was a joy to everybody who knew her. And her boyfriend was pretty much the polar opposite. His name was David Jackson Williams. And from everything I've read, he was just a real douchebag. Like he was miserable, just a entitled prick who was unhappy with his life and wanted to bring everybody else down. Uh, so he claimed, well, so I'll, I'll, I'll start with her death. She was found with a single stab wound to the heart in his closet of the apartment. And he was nowhere to be found because he had fled north to his parents' house where they called the cops and said, oh, our son's here. You probably want to come get him. He ran home to mommy and daddy and they wound up calling the cops in Oxford to tell them that, hey, he's here. You want to come get him. Uh, he was brought back to Oxford and they interviewed him. And his claim was that they were committing suicide together, that they took 10 pills each. Clonopin was the, the drug he said they used, had a whole bunch of alcohol, went into the closet because he said we wouldn't be found as fast. And they were going to stab themselves through the chest. He claims he did not go deep enough. He passed out. And when he came to, she was already dead. And there was nothing he could do. Okay. So what's this fuck stick do? He drinks beer. He plays video games and he orders pizza for the next day. While his dead girlfriend is in his closet. Um, it was just mind boggling that this shit was happening. That he claimed all of this. And, and for a while, I honestly felt like he was going to potentially get off because of evidence that came out but eventually uh it was two years and the case was brought to trial his defense was still that it was a suicide but evidence kind of proved otherwise first of all she died from a single stab wound to her chest um typically when one dies by suicide there are hesitation marks and there were no hesitation marks found around the wound. In fact, she had marks on her neck that looked as if she might have been choked prior to her death. Quick question, Lori. Did our defendant have wounds since he said he tried to stab himself and failed? He did, but they were all kind of minor and superficial. Well, isn't that convenient? Absolutely. So and it's I'm also go important to note that Demetria was a woman of color and um, Mr. Jackson Johnson Williams Williams was a white man. Yes, absolutely. In fact, the doctor who performed the autopsy found bruising around her neck that could have been caused by manual strangulation before she was dead. 
So none of this, oh, it was a botched suicide attempt, was really had any weight. Um, and during the trial, Dr. Ernest Lykissi, hopefully I pronounced his name correctly, uh, he was an expert in clinical and forensic toxicology. He testified that there were no drugs found in Demetria's system. And David Williams was claiming that they had taken 10 pills. Um, he also found that her blood alcohol level was 0.4%. Um, and this is just the craziest thing that came out of that whole trial, which he said meant that she would have been, quote, ready for the undertaker. So if her blood alcohol level was 0.4%, there was no way that she would have been able to stab herself once and kill herself. Um, and the defense's expert witness wasn't really able to back up his claim that she had taken her own life. Um, and Williams was found guilty of murder and sentenced to life in prison. Um, and thankfully, his appeals have gone nowhere. He was successful in one thing making me realize that I really didn't want to be a crime reporter. I had to cover the actual trial for an advanced reporting class for journalism. And I actually went on a day that they were showing photos of her body. They were blown up for everyone to see and seeing her poor family react to having to relive that whole situation and seeing their their daughter their niece their sister in such a horrible condition just made me realize that maybe I didn't want to be the one that would have to ask those personal questions to family members who had lost somebody so violently and so suddenly that maybe I was better off being the person that watched the shows about it talked about it with my friends and um, read about it in the newspaper and in books, but actually being there firsthand wasn't the career choice for me. And so I shifted my focus. I now work in public relations. Uh, but now I, here I am, you know, uh, what, uh, 16 years later, as <laughs> Hannah said earlier, talking about death and murder with two of my closest friends so you know that that case really hit me hard um and I mean I still think about it all the time I you know I wonder where Demetria would be had this not happened to her um you know could someone have have done something or I, I don't know. It just, it, it's, it's one of those cases that sticks with me and has stuck with me for all these years. And, uh, and as Hannah said, we want to tell the stories of people of color, people who you often don't hear their stories and whether they're murdered or lived in a crazy, interesting life and died naturally. Um, I think it's important that we share those stories and I'm looking forward to, to doing that with you girls. Yeah. And some clarification for people who don't know how blood alcohol levels work. So 0.4 means 40% of your total blood volume is alcohol. The legal limit in most States where you were too drunk to drive is 0.08. So yeah. The difference between 8%, you're too impaired to drive, and this poor baby had 
40 percent that is he the medical examiner is absolutely right she should have been in a coma i mean you do that's just and i mean that's something it's just a fun fact about you know blood alcohol um to be personal, I have a brother who suffers from alcoholism. And one time when we had to call the ambulance on him, his blood alcohol level was 0.36. And the EMT couldn't even tell he was drunk. So the he should have been in a coma, but we're professional alcoholics in my family and it takes a lot. So, but keep that, you know, with blood alcohol, when, it, you know, a 0.08, you're too hammered to drive. This poor baby, 40% of her blood was alcohol. And she and supposedly killed herself. Which that just yes. makes me wonder One, if he forced her to drink all of that or. Yeah. Something. I mean, because that's blackout. That's absolutely yeah. blackout drunk. It was, it was very strange because I think leading up to her death, she was missing classes, missing her shifts. She was also a resident advisor. Um, she was missing band practice. And Jessica, who is my RA, uh, just knew that that wasn't right. And so I, I honestly feel like she, they were together for this week. And it could have been know, a bender. honestly. I feel, yeah, it was a bit, and I honestly feel like she was probably trying to convince him not to do it because he was so depressed and so miserable. It just, I, I, I just feel like in my heart of hearts that she was trying to convince him that this was not the way to go about doing things. And, you know, he had it in his mind that, they were going to be Romeo and Juliet and they want, they were going to die by suicide together. And then he wound up being too chicken shit to follow through with what he was forcing on her. And, you know, he, he killed her and I'm sorry, but for somebody who had never exhibited symptoms of depression, the way um, that he was claiming, you know, to, to have to just die from one single stab wound that takes a, and especially if you think going through your breastbone right absolutely that takes a lot of force <laughs> and a lot of in my mind rage and anger and passion and that's just not how and, women kill themselves I mean that's no. just not generally speaking no and I just wonder too and I don't know if this is anything you know Lori I, to me this typically you see murder as a part of escalation like it starts with domestic violence and escalates was she maybe drinking to numb the pain was was had had he been abusing her for a long time and and she thought she could change him maybe because a lot of times you do think that I don't know yeah it's all speculation either and uh, yeah, at the, you know, at this point, he's where he belongs. Mm -hmm. You know, the world's lost a, a bright, very intelligent young woman. Um, and, you know, I've I've thought about trying to reconnect with uh, Jessica and just get some more information. I know she testified at the trial because she was the actually the person other than uh, David Williams who spoke to Demetria. Um and so I've thought about trying to see if I could find her on social media and just, you know, follow up with her and get some information, you know, years later, it's that journalism instinct, you know, yeah. wanting to know the story and to, to learn more from, 
somebody who was, you know, on the front lines the whole time. Um, so maybe that's something that we'll do, you know, as we expand and, and figure out what, what the hell we're doing with this, maybe, you know, I find her and we, we do, you know, a mini sode where we interview people that we've, or not people that we've talked about. <laughs> that doesn't make any sense, but people who are involved in, uh, yeah, people who are involved in the situation, you know, um, police officers, family members, you know, investigators. I think that's definitely something that'll come down the line since the three of us did major in journalism, you know, we, yeah. And as a plug for Ole Miss, we have a vast network of people who you didn't realize, oh, I was, I worked at the radio station with them and they know this attorney who knows, you know, so that is one of the benefits of, of being an Ole Miss person is not only (laughs) do we randomly think the hottie toddy when our boss says, are you ready? But we also uh, have a, a lot of networking opportunities for people who have the inside scoop on a lot of this really cool, these good stories. Yeah. And I think that's one thing we'll, we'll eventually sort of venture into is doing more interviews and hearing firsthand instead of us just sort of, you know, reporting to y'all, you know, we'll, we'll hear it from the my first instinct is to say the horse's mouth. And I feel like that's disrespectful. <laughs> From the first source, first sources. From the very first source. There we go. Um, if, if you haven't noticed, we, we are all out of journalism. <laughs> we actually, yes. I was a reporter for like eight and a half years. And I, I still continued to re- do some journalism assignments here and there. But yeah, we've all left journalism behind. Yeah, it's a tough I was a. I was a copy editor and a page designer for three years. Um, don't go into newspapers, kids. <laughs> <laughs> it's a tough world. Let me tell you. Well, I got y'all beat. I got out before I even graduated. College. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah. See, that was my fun story. too. was when I graduated, I worked at a newspaper for eight and a half years and my beats were cops breaking news and entertainment so it was like literally going from covering the local community theaters production of like arsenic and old lace to okay some meth head has set a woman on fire go go cover that and it's like how do you but I did it whatever (laughs) uh stories for days okay speaking of stories um my turn I nice segue nice I try absolutely um And speaking of stories, that's exactly how my story starts, is with stories. Um, So um, I'm originally from Mississippi. My entire family basically is from Mississippi. And, you know, say what you want to about the state. We we are very good at one thing, and that's storytelling. Um, We are really good at, at telling stories, and we're really good at really treasuring good stories, too, I think. Um, And like Lori and Hannah my mama was into true crime because she also loves a good story. She was into true crime. We watched all of the specials, just like Hannah and Lori said, um, and all the scary movies. Um, but she also liked scary, um, you know, paranormal stuff too, or, or whatever. I remember being a kid and she read, um, she read every Stephen King book that came out and she would share with me 
certain passages and be like, this is good writing, which, you know, some of that may be a little scary for a kid, but it was, it was good writing. Um, and we have just some really good storytellers in my family, like my grandmother and my uncle John, who I don't know my uncle John super well. He died when I was 10, but his legend lives on in my family. So I pretty well soaked up my family's love for good stories and I just ran with it. Um, and I fell in love with cemeteries as a teenager. Um, I started going to a cemetery um, in Union County called Wilkins Cemetery. And I would go there with my mother and my grandmother. And it's where my uncle John was buried. Um, and it really opened my eyes to seeing a cemetery, not as this place where it's, it's full of dead bodies or full of history or, you know, it's, it's over and done. I saw it the way my grandmother saw it, which is full of stories, basically. Every headstone is a story. Every person is a story. And my Uncle John, who, like I said, I grew up not knowing him super well. The, the thing, when I think of Uncle John, I think of peacocks because we had family reunions at his house and he had peacocks and we used to chase them which is not nice. Don't do that kids. <laughs> you know, I think that, that won't so when get I see... them to, oh, I'm sorry. <laughs> no, okay. go ahead. That must be a Mississippi thing because we had peacocks too. We had oh. Ricky and Lucy oh. <laughs> chasing them did not make Ricky show his feathers. No, no, no. Could <laughs> never get said, them to don't do feathers. it. Don't do it. Don't do it. I mean, they just jumped on the roof uh, of the it, house and being what, six years old, we were like, oh, well, I can't jump up there. So we just walk <laughs> off. Don't torture your peacocks, kids. Yes. He... Or peahens. Yes. Leave the peafowl alone. <laughs> <laughs> so he is buried at Wilkins and he's actually there beside Johnny Sue which is his daughter that he and his wife lost when uh, Johnny Sue was just a couple of days old. And, and these are all stories my grandmother told me as we would walk through the cemetery. Um, also buried out there was Mama Bailey. Um, my grandmother's grandmother. Uh, Mama Bailey raised my grandmother basically, but she was a very tough woman, very strict, didn't put up with anything. So it was always fun to hear stories about her. I have a cousin there named Leroy who um, I think he died in 1933. So of course I didn't know him, but my grandmother said um, he found out his girlfriend cheated on him. He was 19 years old, found out his girlfriend cheated on him and he sat on train tracks and completed suicide. Um, so there, there's just, as you go through the cemetery, there are all of these stories and all of these different monuments that, tell the story but don't tell the story which is I'll get into my love of monuments for a minute but I wanted to finish up with my uncle Alfred's story because my uncle Alfred is buried out there too and his story is my very favorite according to my grandmother and I you can't get a hold of Mississippi death records if you could I would drown in them I would be so happy um but according to my grandmother my uncle Alfred's wife went to church one Sunday and said she needed to be put on the prayer list at church because she needed her quote stumbling block removed unquote and uncle Alfred was dead in a week and according <laughs> to my grandmother like he might have been diabetic or had some heart issues or something like that but I mean everyone's like 
the whole congregation prayed him to go away. I mean, let's be real. When you say you need your stumbling block removed, that's what that means. Jesus was like, I got you, boo. <laughs> Apparently. Absolutely. <laughs> According to my grandmother, his wife was like crazy religious, like like, I mean, of course, you know, everyone in the South is to some degree religious. Right. I mean, it's just what you're and raising. some degree crazy. Oh, God, yes. Yeah, you said that right. Um, <laughs> that's a shirt, too. Some degree religious, some degree <laughs> crazy. Um, but she said, like, it was like, it was an obsession. Her religion was her obsession. But I just thought it was fascinating that she went to church and asked that she needed her stumbling block removed. Um, so I was really hooked there. Um I've always sort of loved the darker aspects of life, but I really feel like too, sometimes that can actually bring out the best in good people. Um, you know, we, we hear about terrible things that happen, but you always hear about say first responders who are running into the chaos to help people or, or just good Samaritans. And I don't know, I think sometimes we can learn from some of the terrible things that happen too. And I really love monuments in cemeteries because when you think about it, monuments, maybe two where they're buried, but two monuments, that's really sort of the last major act of love you're going to do for that loved one. It's something you're going to put a lot of time and thought and probably money into. Let's be real. They're not cheap. Um, and I know there are plenty of people who they fill out everything pre-need. They, they fill out their, um, you know, they buy their plot, they buy their headstone, they they go ahead and buy everything pre-need. But generally speaking, I feel like a lot of times this is something the family does. So I, I really love seeing them as a monument of love. And especially with Victorian stones, you know, you see the lilies or you see a, a grave with a broken rosebud or not a broken rosebud, but a, a rose and the bud is broken off you know which signifies you know someone lost and as they were blooming in life you know um so I love all of that cemeteries are just my happy place and I know I'm gonna get crap for that because when some celebrity said this a few weeks months ago everyone gave her crap for it but I'm sorry I just feel like cemeteries are peaceful and they're a place full of love that's truly what I feel um because that's where our loved ones are um, and speaking of that, so this summer, um, well, I wrote this in 2020, didn't I? Last <laughs> summer, um, my dad died of COVID-19. So please y'all wear a mask and stay home. Lord. Anyway, um, and literally a week after he died, I was laid off from my job. So two traumas back to back. When you're someone with an insane, incredible amount of PTSD and, and, and just lost and not sure what to do. What do you do? And I was looking for comfort, basically a way to find comfort after losing my father and also a job that I really loved. Where do I find comfort in a world where you can't go to your friends anymore because of COVID? Um, so I went to one of my favorite historic cemeteries, Elmwood Cemetery in Memphis, and I volunteered there for several, I don't know how many times over the last couple of years, I've given tours, tours there and helped with some of their events. Um, but the executive director suggested that I start cleaning tombstones. So they showed me how to do it. And 
I just became obsessed. And since July 1st, 2020, and we're recording almost mid-January 2021, and I'm not about to go out there and clean tombstones in 30 degree weather. Um, <laughs> I'm at 208 stones. Um, and I absolutely, I'm just obsessed. I love it. It it gets me out there. I feel connected to my friends. That's what I call the dead people whose stones I clean. Um, and I, I, I clean them to the best of my ability. Um, I absolutely love doing that. Like wash, watching the dirt and grime and moss and all the biological crap come off of it it's just it's so satisfying to watch I love the smell of the earth as you're cleaning because it's coming all that dirt's coming off and it smells so good um and I love just the quiet I get out there with a book and and listen to a book and get out there and clean and enjoy the birds and squirrels that are out there and the beautiful trees and I also love seeing the monuments because then you can really see you can really read them a lot of these monuments you couldn't read they've been out there for 168 years and you can't read anything on them and now you can um, assuming they held up well some of them you'll never read but um, I've researched all of these folks whose graves I've cleaned so I have a ton of stories um, and I, I just love them all. And it just, it goes back to my original point of cemeteries are full of stories and they're full of love. And I'd want all of my dead friends to feel loved when I clean them. And I want to tell their story because, you know, it's so easy to say, you know, to go to like a historic cemetery like Elmwood and you can point out the big wigs, you know, Mayor Boss Crump, who ran Memphis, you know, for so many years and was very controversial. Or you have Robert Church, who is the South's first black millionaire. You have these huge stories out there. But I really am fascinated by the smaller stones and the everyday people who are living everyday lives because that they're who make the world go round. And um that's that's me and you and that's your family and my family and um I just want to make them feel a little bit more loved so that's it that's my story I mean cemeteries like are my happy place too because I am uh, choosing my next Chicago apartment based on proximity to my favorite Chicago cemetery um which is Graceland Cemetery which has like a who's who of Chicago it has like Pullman family um some major league baseball players, um, the Burnham family who basically built Chicago after the great fire. And not only that, but it has like gravestones for soldiers who died in world war one, who died in world war two, where they couldn't bring their body back. And this is the only thing that their families have. Um, and another part of that is for me, like my grandmother, died in 2011 very tragically in a car accident and she's not buried she's cremated and my parents have her urn and so when I went home for Christmas there was my grandma I got to see my grandma she's you know I and that was such a comfort to me Mm -hmm. to not leave her in the ground somewhere and just walk away she was for a time when my mom's mental health was not doing great my grandma's urn stayed with me. And that to me was just a comfort. It was such a comfort to have her. I just, she was in my living room every day. I got to see her every day and no, that's not her. It's her remains, but it's part of her. 
it is, it's something to, I have this. And so, yeah. And I think, I think taking comfort from gravestones, I think we, we, um, a really great YouTube that probably everyone knows is Caitlin Doty and talks about how we need to get more comfortable with death and dying and the whole process. And that to me is such a huge thing because I lost my grandmother so suddenly and there was really no, you know, it just one minute she was there and the next second she was gone. And so still having those parts of her and still having that memory of her and still being able to touch her urn whenever I go see my parents is such a, just a comfort, especially when you're grieving them. You know, and that's one thing that I'm fascinated with. And y'all know this because y'all were there. Um, When I was in college, I took the class on the sociology of death and dying. And that's still my favorite class. I still um, point back to it all the time because I'm always thinking about this. I wish there was a way to have majored in that. like, (laughs) Because this is really where my passion lies. I truly believe there is no wrong way to grieve. And it's so fascinating to me what comforts one family would absolutely not comfort another. Um, you know, there are some people who they absolutely love having the remains there with them, as you say. And then there's some other families who they want to go to that cemetery and they want to go visit that way. Um, I mean, there's just so many ways to, to grieve and so many ways to remember your loved one. And I just think all of them are fascinating. Yeah. So and because, even I mean, culturally, and yeah, like, I mean, with Mexicans, like, we're after my, we had a funeral for my grandmother in Kansas City, and the get together after the funeral, I mean, we were laughing, we were cutting up, right. we were sharing funny memories, and I know there's other families and other cultures where that's just like, what are you, how could you laugh at a time like this? And I'm like, this is how we process is yeah. we remember the funny things that they did. And we talk about um, when my great grandmother died, when I was 12, we, the joke was she got to the pearly gates and asked Peter why his name was Peter, um, <laughs> which she probably did. I, she was a body, body woman. <laughs> um, so, I mean, but that's, you know, and I'm not saying, you know, all Latinos and all Mexican families are like that, but that's, that's no. how we dealt with it. And that's how we grieved was remembering these funny things and, and getting some joy, taking joy from their life instead of focusing on their death. Yeah. My family is kind of the same way. I mean, we've, We've shared some crazy stories about some of the people who have passed on. I mean, when my grandmother died back in 2010, um, my cousin, who was her the oldest of her grandkids, he had passed in 2006. And when they were both alive, they would both sit in a corner and drink and tell dirty jokes. And that was one thing someone said to my mom was, oh, I bet they're up in heaven telling dirty jokes to each other right. now. And that brought me so much comfort. Like it's a, a silly joke. Maybe some people would find it disrespectful, but it, it brought me so much comfort. Cause I'm like, yeah, Randy and grandma are up there and they're, they're telling some jokes and they're giggling to themselves. Yeah. Just it's the two of them and they're enjoying it. And that brought me a lot of comfort. Um, but yeah, I mean, that's something that I just think going back to, you know, the death positivity or, or I don't know if that's what Caitlin calls it. I can't remember. I think it is. I think so. Um, I mean, that's one thing too, I think about 
at the same time is in in cleaning the tombstones at Elmwood as I said you have people there who who are millionaires you have people there who are murderers you have people there who were alive maybe an hour or two yeah. they they didn't have a start in life at all and that to me death is the great equalizer right some of us get there in a more interesting way than others you know um and I just I think no matter what happens this is the one thing we all have in common for better or for worse right absolutely absolutely so this is cemetery row (laughs) (laughs) we hope you're not listening yes Yes. I promise we will get better um, our <laughs> next episode, which we hope you guys will stick around for, is going to be mass graves. Yes. And and the cool thing I think we're learning with that is, um, at least in mine, it's um, connecting a lot to what's happening today, even though it hasn't, it, it happened over 160 years ago. Um, the h- history is, is present and present is history what i'm trying to say that history repeats itself history repeats itself yes and if it doesn't repeat repeat itself itself. it rhymes it sure does yeah i mean i used to be an editor and a writer and anyway (laughs) used to be articulate back in the day um lori you so kindly set up our um social channels if you're still with us please follow us on social media you can find us on facebook instagram and twitter at Cemetery Row Pod, or you can send us an email at cemeteryrowpod at gmail.com. Woohoo! Awesome. Thanks for joining us, y'all. <laughs> yes. We we will hopefully be back in like two weeks. Two weeks, I think. Yeah. Cool. Yes. All right. Thanks, y'all. Bye. Bye. Bye.